Well, good morning. So I don't know about y'all, but I have really enjoyed this Beatitudes series so far. It's been very interesting and life-giving. I feel like every week I've learned something new or read the scriptures again for the first time. Last week's especially, for those of you who, who were here last week, you know David's message was just super powerful. And if you weren't, um, I really encourage you to go listen to that sermon again online. And if you are wondering how to do that, you can ask me and I'll tell you. <laughs> so um, the best part about this series is that these interpretations of the Beatitudes aren't just coming out of nowhere, coming out of David's brain, coming out of my brain. They're right there in the scriptures if we really dig down and approach them with fresh eyes and open hearts. When we put down our long-held beliefs and approach the text with fresh, open minds, we'll be surprised about the fresh word from God that we hear, that we so long to hear. So I encourage you this morning to open your hearts to open your minds, and I hope that you will hear a fresh word. Let's go ahead and read our scripture passage for the day. Matthew 5, 1 through 9. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And then today's beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The word of God for the people of God. And God's people said? Amen. Amen. So a few years ago, I spent a summer working up in Philadelphia. The first week on the job was mainly training and orientation with the other summer interns, a bunch of wide-eyed, bright and bushy-tailed college kids believing we could change the world in just 10 weeks. Part of this training included a city-wide scavenger hunt. Now, I will say, after experiencing our youth group's D-Now scavenger hunt last year, this was nothing in comparison. Any of y'all who have been on that know the youth do not play. We were given three or four hours to take photos and videos of our groups at as many of the major Philadelphia tourist spots as possible. We ran the stairs like Rocky. We ate Philly cheesesteaks as big as our head at D'Alessandro's. We got lost trying to find Independence Hall. And we braved the crowds at Reading Terminal Market. It was fun to visit all of these important historical sites in Philly. But as the summer went on, I learned that the real story of the city was painted on the walls of its under-resourced neighborhoods. To say that there are a lot of murals in Philly is an understatement. 
Everywhere you turn in these neighborhoods, it seems like you bump into a gorgeous, intricate, moving mural. The murals first began popping up in 1984 as part of the Mural Arts Program. The Philadelphia Tourism website bills this program as an anti-graffiti initiative, but it's so much more than that. It's a community mural project that brings members of under-resourced and often overlooked neighborhoods together to tell their stories. The process of creating the mural begins with a community conversation. Residents of the neighborhood meet to discuss where in the neighborhood they want the mural to go, and they discuss what story that they want it to tell. Murals feature neighborhood heroes, raise up social justice concerns, and document important moments in the community's history. I think we have a couple of pictures of some of the murals. As you can see, they're gorgeous and colorful. A professional muralist who may, not, may or may not be part of the community listens in on these conversations and is entrusted with telling that community stories. The project has brought together mosques and synagogues, churches and correctional facility inmates, schools and neighbors, to create more than 3,600 murals to date. So you can see I wasn't exaggerating when I said there are a lot of murals in Philly. The process of creating a mural as a community opens up an honest dialogue about what that community needs, what that community dreams, its hopes for the future. It empowers people to come together to create social change in their neighborhoods. And they are no longer strangers, but neighbors who share a vision for peace in their city. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Just for fun, I'm going to read it in another translation. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. It's difficult to truly appreciate what Jesus is doing in this beatitude without understanding the context in which he made the statement. To us, it seems pretty straightforward. Make peace. Peace is good. God likes peace. But Jesus was calling out the political powers of the day in a very blatant way. It's almost funny. During Jesus' life, Israel was living under occupation by the Roman Empire. Rome was by far the most powerful force at the time, military strength and wealth unmatched. The empire was flourishing, and this era was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The Roman emperors even called themselves, wait for it, peacemakers and sons of God. You see where I'm going with this? Just imagine that you're in that crowd that day when Jesus says this. He's been preaching things like, blessed are the poor, and blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the meek. And he's turning what the people thought they knew about the kingdom of God and who was blessed on its head. 
And then he makes this statement about peacemakers and sons of God, children of God. And on its face, it could be taken as support of the Roman Empire and its leaders. But we know Jesus, and we know that nothing about what he says or how he says it is ever an accident. Jesus has been reinterpreting what it means to be blessed by God. So we know that he is directly challenging what it means to be a peacemaker. Roman peace was a violent peace, maintained through military force. Roman peace was only possible because those in power crushed those who disagreed with them or who were lower on the social hierarchy. Roman peace was peace for a privileged class and not for all people. Jesus says this is not what peace is. The Roman emperors were peacekeepers, not peacemakers. When Jesus says blessed are the peacemakers, he's talking about a peace that is firmly rooted in the Jewish concept of shalom. Because Jesus was Jewish, right? Shalom is a rich word that is translated as peace in English. And when we think of peace, we often associate the word with tranquility and calm and quiet. No violence, no war. And those are certainly aspects of peace, but shalom is broader and more nuanced than that. Shalom comes from a Hebrew word that means wholeness and completeness. Rabbi David Zaslow says that true peace must have wholeness as its foundation, and that shalom is the active seeking of wholeness and completeness for all people. I like how author and theologian Oshita Moore puts it. She writes, Shalom is God's dream for the world as it should be. Whole, vibrant, flourishing, unified, and yes, at peace. So let me say that beatitude again, taking a little creative license. Blessed are the shalom makers, for they will be called children of God the shalom makers, the people who seek wholeness in every area of their lives, the people who repair, restore, and reconcile what is broken and fragmented, the people who create a world where everyone can flourish and experience wholeness. Sounds beautiful, right? That's the kind of world I want to live in. But it also sounds a little intimidating there's so much pain and brokenness and fragmentation, not just in the world as a whole, but in our own lives. There are broken relationships, broken dreams, broken health, broken systems and institutions. How can we even begin to create world shalom when we can't find it most days in our own lives? Well, we start somewhere, and we start 
right at home. Shalom starts with seeking wholeness in your own life. Maybe you need to make that doctor's appointment you've been putting off. Or finally go see that therapist. Maybe you need to draw some boundaries and learn how to say no so that you're not living life at 150 miles per hour. Maybe there's a relationship that needs some intentional time, an apology that needs to be given, forgiveness that needs to be offered. Or maybe there's an unhealthy situation that you need to take a step back from. We all have tender places, pain that's screaming out for our attention. You know what it is in your life. I know what it is in mine. Naming it and deciding to tend to it is how we begin cultivating that shalom, that wholeness in our lives, our first step towards flourishing. Now, earlier this month, I attended the Evolving Faith Conference in Denver, Colorado, which is a gorgeous city. I loved it so much. I would move there in a heartbeat if I didn't love you guys so much. So don't worry, you're stuck with me. Um, But the conference bills itself as a gathering for wanderers, wanderers, and spiritual refugees to help you discover that you are not alone. Most, or all really, of the attendees are people who are questioning the faith that they grew up with, the brand of Christianity that they've believed for years And they're asking new questions about God and what it means to follow Christ. It's a process that some refer to as deconstruction and reconstruction. You take apart the things you've always believed and you hold the pieces up to the light to see what you find. And as you reconstruct, you add new pieces, new insights, new understandings, And sometimes you even let some things go when you realize those pieces no longer fit. At the end of the conference, speaker Jeff Chu closed with these words, this charge to all who had attended. Your reconstruction is not just for you. None of it is just about us as individuals. We belong to each other as God's creation. At the great feast, there are no tables for one. In other words, if I put my faith back together in a way that only liberates or benefits me, then I've missed the point. If my faith does not move me to love more openly and to seek the liberation of others so that they can experience the fullness of God, then it's worthless. The same is true of shalom. Yes, we seek shalom in each of our individual lives, but it doesn't stop there. And if only a few of us are experiencing shalom, flourishing, peace, then none of us are experiencing true shalom. One of my all-time favorite books is written by Father Gregory Boyle. Boyle is a Jesuit priest living in Los Angeles in a neighborhood with heavy gang violence 
Boyle says that when he was first appointed to the parish in the 80s, he was sure that he could solve the gang problem and bring peace to the gang wars in his neighborhood. With all the enthusiasm of a newly minted minister, he wrote up a peace treaty that he got leaders from the various gangs to sign. And unsurprisingly, the ceasefire lasted a few weeks at most, and then it was back to business as usual. Over the next few years, it became clear to him that words on a piece of paper about peace were useless. As he got to know the people in the neighborhood, lived his life alongside them, he realized he wasn't sent there to rescue them. He needed to stand with them. He needed to work together with them to find a way to create a different future. So they started something called Homeboy Industries. At first, it was a screen printing business, but it caught on like fire. And so they grew and became a bakery and a cafe. They tried plumbing for a little while. That didn't go so well. They tried all sorts of different endeavors, and it's grown into this whole conglomerate in the neighborhood where they pay employees a fair living wage and provide support programs in education, addiction counseling, and more. Members from all the different gangs began working alongside one another, sharing a common goal of making the money they needed to support their families, gaining the necessary job training and experience to move up and to create a better future and better opportunities for themselves. Boyle saw these former members of rival gangs who had once been at each other's throats become brothers and sisters and friends as they worked together day in and day out. Now, Homeboy Industries hasn't magically resolved all the gang issues in the neighborhood, but their impact on the community and the individual residents is undeniable. They're starting to flourish, starting to experience that peace, that wholeness, that shalom of God. Boyle says, we are all invited to stand with others who are burdened with the demonized and the disposable. This is our common call because no kinship, no peace. The kind of peace that Jesus teaches is only possible when we know each other. Because when we know each other, we start to love each other. And when we love someone, our flourishing is bound up with theirs. When we don't know people, it's easier for them to be issues that we debate at a distance, rather than flesh and blood friends whose pain we can't ignore because it actually impacts us. This is what it means to be a shalom maker. Instead of operating from a place of fear and defensiveness, shalom makers lead with love and compassion. Shalom makers work for healing where there is injury. 
Shalom makers dismantle the systems of oppression and exploitation that keep people from flourishing and experiencing wholeness. Shalom makers do not sit in silence for the sake of inner calm and conflict avoidance, but call out injustice and prejudice when they see it. Shalom makers don't close doors and draw deeper lines in the sand, but welcome everyone to the table, pulling up more chairs. We want to be a church full of shalom makers in the city of Louisville. A church where people can find healing and wholeness. A church that looks around at our neighbors and understands that our flourishing is dependent on theirs. It's why we're trying to be clear about the fact that we welcome all people, love all people, celebrate all people as they are. It's why we're joining with our Muslim and Jewish friends in the city this fall to build the Habitat House that Love built. It's why we value real conversations about faith wherever you are on that journey. Because we want all people to experience God's shalom. We're literally part of a denomination whose identity statement the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, is a movement for wholeness in a fragmented world. It's in our DNA. So what about you? Where do you see the need for wholeness in your own life? Where do you see the need for wholeness in your corner of the world, in your block of the neighborhood? And how can you enter into those tender places with God to sow the seeds for shalom? I want us to end today with one of the church's most treasured peace prayers, the prayer of St. Francis. Will you all bow with me? Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Grant that we may not seek so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. May it be so of us, Lord. Amen.